nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance, an economy of one. With Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. You know, it's rare that I'm embarrassed by what goes on in my country from a worldwide standpoint. But this week, I got to tell you, what the Democrats did in the House was truly embarrassing. Uh, Against the House rules, of course, but just embarrassing. It reminds me that these people are products of the 60s. Remember the 60s? I was a very, very young child in the 60s, and I remember college sit-ins. I remember people protesting, and, and I even remember some of it being violent, Kent State, that kind of stuff. But uh, looking back, I didn't really know what was going on at the time, but looking back, those sit-ins, those protests revolved around civil rights, which I think was valid. I think the solutions that were created by the government were less than optimal, and we're still paying for them today. It's grown into an animal we can't control. And also people were protesting the Vietnam War. Now, we can look back with a certain amount of nostalgia and saying that that protest against the war really damaged the American reputation worldwide, and uh, we're still paying for some of those consequences today. Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I remember the Vietnam War fairly well. My brother was drafted and got a deferment, but I grew up in a little dinky town in Marinci of about 2,500 people. We lost members of our community in Vietnam. Uh, I remember distinctly members of our church who had children that went to Vietnam and never came home other than in a box. So, and it was not a good war. I mean, in, I know there's no such thing as a good war. I, let, let me clarify that. But there are reasonable justifications for armed conflict for war. So I understand that a little bit. And to compare what people did back then to what the Democrats are doing in the House this week, it's beyond pathetic. These are attorneys. These are adults, supposedly. I I think a case could be made against uh, the adult statement. But, you know, the the government, the, the way American government works today is different than the way it was designed and certainly the way it was when I went through high school and college, it's just no longer a constitutional republic. When the Democrats are in power, they get everything they want. Even if it means ramming through legislation in the middle of the night 
twisting rules until they're virtually unrecognizable. Can you say Obamacare? But uh, when the Republicans are in power, the Democrats still get everything they want because the Republicans basically just kind of roll over. They have no spine. They hand them everything they want for fear of being called a racist or a homophobe or pro-terrorist or something like that. When the Democrats don't get what they want, then we see what uh, we saw this last week. They throw temperature tantrums. They hold their breath until they get what they want. Either way, they win. Always. Republicans always roll over. They always give in. Now, they staged the sit-in for, I don't know, 15 hours or 18 hours or something. I don't know. But it it was embarrassing. Now, if they want to, you know, Paul Ryan, I think, was um, mildly weak in how he handled this. He certainly didn't handle it like Nancy Pelosi handled it when she was the uh, person in charge of the House of Representatives. She had security escort people out. She turned off the lights, uh, locked the doors, that kind of stuff. This is pretty much a party for these people. They're well paid. They're enjoying Starbucks and pizzas and Chinese food. They're taking selfies of each other. They're laughing. I don't know if they all got manicures together, but brought in pillows and blankets. And, you know, it it was a a slumber party, essentially. And if I was Paul Ryan, now he, he recessed the house, would shut off all the cameras, shut off all the recording. But they used their cell phones to live stream. And, of course, CNN, being CNN, picked it up and broadcast their live stream. You know, they're, they're not getting what they want. They had two gun control pieces of legislation this last week, and it failed to get the uh, votes they wanted in the Senate. They had two Republican pieces of legislation in the Senate this week, didn't get the votes to pull forward. So the House Democrats decided they were going to take up the cause. And some of the Senate Democrats actually came over to the House and sat down on the carpet with them. My first thought was, I wonder how much it's going to cost the taxpayers to uh, have people come in and help these people get up off the floor because uh, could be some issues, if you know what I mean. Anyway, they want to stifle, to limit your Second Amendment rights. It's just amazing to me, and it's all around the massacre in Orlando. And they refused to say this guy was an Islamic radical terrorist. The language we hear, the word we hear was self-radicalization. Self-radicalization. This is the administration's way of saying, don't even try to connect this with ISIS or the Islamic religion or Muslims in general. No, 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 no. This was just one self-radicalized nutcase who spent three hours in a bar, mainly catering to gays, killing people. Called 911, talked to him, checked his uh, social media to see if his stuff had gone viral. He, He wanted that fame and fortune that, or not fortune, but that fame and notoriety uh, that goes with that. Three hours he had people held hostage and trapped in bathrooms and that kind of stuff. Now, 
everybody's asked this question, and I'm going to ask it too. What if one, one patron of that bar had a gun? Just one. I mean, there were hundreds of people in there. What if just one had a gun? This guy was shooting people up with high-velocity rifle bullets. It was not an assault rifle. It wasn't fully automatic, but high-velocity, high-powerful bullets. What if one person had a gun? I, I contend that if one person had a gun, pointed it toward the ceiling, and pulled the trigger, this guy probably would have ran. Now, do I want him to run? No, I'm happy he's dead. Wish we could kill him again, but we can't. So I would contend that if somebody took a gun, shot it in the ceiling, that he probably would have ran. Did he have accomplices? I don't know. I don't know. We won't know everything for a while. So let's get used to that. But politicians are using this on both sides, by the way. On both sides, yes, it's the Democrats doing the childish behavior of sitting in. But Republicans are trying to figure out a way to exploit the incident in Orlando also to their benefit. But they're trying to exploit to gun control, to control your guns and eliminate the Second Amendment. Presidential candidate Hillary Clinton has come right out and said she will work tirelessly to curtail weapons of war. And they want to, anybody on the no-fly list, they want to limit them from being able to buy. Well, we've already seen dozens, hundreds of stories of people on the no-fly list that shouldn't be. And what will it take to get off? And once you're on, it's five years. So, you know, you're presumed guilty. And because of that presumption, whether it's a mistake or not from the government, they're taking away your Second Amendment rights. We'll keep an eye on this story. We're going to keep following it because it's important. It is the basis of our economy and your liberty. Coming up next, since we're talking about guns, what are the odds, what are the real odds of you getting shot? We'll take a look at those numbers next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. What are the real odds of you having a problem with a gun or being in danger? Of being shot. Now, the latest data we have is from 2013. I suspect we'll be getting 2014 fairly soon here. They're always a year or so behind on the statistics. But let's take a look at it. In 2013, 33,600 people died because of a gun. 33,600. Now, remember, we're, we're over 300 million in this country. So, 33,000 is a low number percentage-wise. Now, if you were a family member or one of the 33,000, it's a much more important statistic. But from a ratio standpoint, that's a small, small ratio. 21.2 thousand are suicides. 
Now, suicide's already against the law, so these people are committing crimes, but they're dying. They're killing themselves. So that leaves 11.2 thousand, roughly, that are homicides. 500 are unintentional. I'll call this uh, gun safety issues. People just mishandling a gun, cleaning it, thought it was unloaded, looked down the barrel, shouldn't have. Another half a thousand, 500, are legal intervention. These are people that are committing a crime most of the time and are shot by authorities. So that leaves about 300 that are of undetermined causes. So you drill down a little bit deeper. And the percentage of homicides that are gang-related or criminal-on-criminal are 70 to 80%. So out of that 11.2 that are homicides, let's say about 8,000 of them are gang-related or criminal-on-criminal. So unless you're a member of a gang or committing a crime with another criminal, those don't really apply to us. So if you take out the suicides, you take out the accidents, you take out the criminal-on-criminal, you're left with 3,500 homicides. 3,500 out of over 300 million people. Now that's 0.001%. Now, to put this in perspective... You're nine times more likely to die from falling than you are to be a victim of a random shooting. Now, if you're the one getting shot, I understand that. It's very serious, and you don't want to be the one getting shot. But we've got our House of Representatives essentially shut down because of people misunderstanding the numbers. To hear them talk, thousands, hundreds of thousands of of Americans are getting murdered needlessly every year. They're all getting shot up with assault rifles, AR-15s, which is not an assault rifle, by the way. It's not an automatic weapon. Another level of their ignorance, but it's actually a very, very small ratio. But this is an election year, and the uh, Democrats have grabbed right a hold of this. And Connecticut, oddly enough, you know, Newtown, Connecticut was the location of a very bad shooting a year or so ago. But oddly enough, Connecticut houses, the state of Connecticut houses quite a few gun manufacturers. And Connecticut has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation. Now, what they're trying to do is it only makes common sense to have more rigorous background checks. And if you're suspected of terrorist activities or on a no-fly list, that you should not be able to buy a gun. And if you think you're on a no-fly list unjustly, then you can appeal and go through a process and get you off the list. Well, that's all well and good, but you're fighting a bureaucracy that is created by lawyers, that is full of lawyers, and has no bottom line. That might take you years, take all your money, take everything, and you still can lose. The no-fly list, the terror suspect list, is 
too subjective for me. These people, these politicians on both sides, both sides, Democrats have taken the spotlight, but it's both sides. They need to understand some basic truths about guns. One, you have a right to own a gun. That is a natural right. I don't know if you're familiar with natural rights, but natural rights are there because you exist. It's an unalienable right by virtue of your right to life and property to defend your family, self, and your stuff. Now, I read about this from a column written by a Connecticut resident, Dave Rybarczyk. Dave Rybarczyk. And he goes into depth on the activity of politicians and the rights. We have a right to keep and bear arms, not just through the virtue of the Second Amendment. It is a fundamental citizen right, and therefore one that government is morally obliged to protect for all of its citizens. This country was founded on the premise of liberty. There is no liberty, none, if you cannot protect yourself, your family, and your property. Second Amendment was created to protect us from gun rights abuses we're seeing from the government right now. Right now. Remember the old adage, when seconds count, police are only minutes away. It's very rare that the police will get there in time when you need them. Up next, change the subject a little bit. We had some very important Supreme Court rulings this week. I want to touch on those next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We had a couple interesting, uh, one good, one not so good, in my opinion, rulings under the Supreme Court this week. The first was, well, I can't really call it a decision. Because the Supreme Court was deadlocked on this issue, essentially a 4-4 split uh, on the vote, the lower court ruling stays in place. Well, the lower court ruling blocked President Obama's immigration plan. Now, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Texas kind of led the way, and 25 other states joined the lawsuit to challenge the expansion of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals and the creation of the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans initiative. Now, President Obama uh, got tired of Congress not passing his ideas. So he took it upon himself to do this with 
an executive order. And what this does, it allows undocumented immigrants or what some of us call illegal aliens who are parents of U.S. citizens, meaning naturally born children here. You've seen case after case where women come into this country who are pregnant, give birth, and that child is automatically a U.S. citizen. So these initiatives allow these parents to uh, avoid being deported. Allows them to stay in the country for three years and apply for a work permit. Now the states, these 26, claim that that would burden uh, the state by having to spend a lot more on public services like health care, law enforcement, education, if undocumented parents of both American citizens and legal permanent residents are allowed to stay in the country. So this was a pretty big blow to President Obama, and it's a, it, it probably will be uh, pretty much done for the rest of his presidency. Doesn't break my heart. Now, what's interesting to me is what's he going to do about it? Because he isn't going to say, oh, rats, I lost, so I'm going to let it go. That's not in his nature. His nature is to say, huh, they don't understand on the Supreme Court, so I'm going to have to do something else that they do understand. And let the states take another two, three, four years to run it through the court system and see if it holds up or not. This illustrates, this and the next ruling illustrates how important the presidency is in this election because the next president is likely to appoint at least one Supreme Court justice and could be as many as three or four. Now think about that. When Scalia passed away, it was essentially 5-4 from the standpoint of constitutional conservative justices versus non-constitutional progressive justices. Now, the Supreme Court is not supposed to be political. It's not supposed to, to fall along party lines, but we all know it does. It always has, always will. The other case that the Supreme Court did rule on this week on a 4-3 ruling was the Supreme Court upheld affirmative action in university admissions. Now, this was brought by a young lady by the name of Abigail Fisher. I think in Texas, she got denied admission to a school in Texas because of, uh, according to her, to being white. And... The Supreme Court came out and said that the college, the university, is entitled to considerable deference in defining the type of institution it wished to be, including intangible characteristics such as student body diversity, 
is that the central to its identity and educational mission. Now, this is the fourth time that this kind of case has been brought before the Supreme Court, and it's the fourth time it's been upheld on racial preferences. I, I guess justice isn't blind anymore. Supreme Court says that a university can have racial preferences. So one would say, certainly I would say, this is reverse discrimination. People who are of minority status get preference. Now, if it went the other way and the majority white person got preference, we'd probably have another sit-in and probably more riots. I don't know. But this is symptomatic of political correctness continuing to go wrong. I mean, it's given preferential treatment now. I ask you, what will happen? The day is coming. You know this and I know this. The day is coming when minorities will be the majority and the majority will be the minority. What happens then? What happens when this young woman who was white, is white, is in the minority. Now, it's going to take a long time in this country because uh, I think blacks make up about, oh man, 18% of the population and Hispanics are, I don't know, 15 to 20% of the population. I know Hispanics, I think, are one of the fastest growing minorities in America right now. But the day is coming when either everyone will be a minority or the people who are minorities now will not be classified minorities and people in the majority will be. You and I probably won't live long enough because it takes a long, long time to change a population's demographics in a country our size. We have 300 and plus million people in this country. So it's, it's going to be a long time, but it's an interesting philosophical question to ask, well, what would happen if things were reversed if it wasn't the same as it is now might be a lot different might be a lot different up next i'm going to spend some time talking about robots robots minimum wage and Seattle is leading the way again. You're not going to believe this. This is incredible, and it explains why businesses are not growing and not being started in this country as they should be. 
I'll talk about those subjects next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, once again, as a presidential election year, we keep hearing about minimum wage and the government's going to create more jobs and that kind of stuff. And both sides, both candidates, both presumed candidates are saying when they are president, they will boost the economy. They will create more jobs. They will help businesses. Well, we both know not going to happen. Not going to happen, but it's interesting some of the things we saw this week as to the direction it's going. Now, we know that the uh, push to raise a minimum wage to $15 an hour all over the country is really going strong. Seattle, one of the first cities, I think, went to a $15 minimum wage. San Francisco, a lot of communities are are going that route. Most recently, we had President Obama change the amount of money that a person on salary makes before you have to pay them or don't have to pay them overtime. So he more than doubled that. Now it's 50,400, something like that. And if they put in more than 40 hours a week, including sending or receiving emails at home, all that has to come into play and you have an employer has to pay them time and a half over 40 hours. If the salary is more than 50,400, then you don't. It's a traditional salary. And we will, we'll see that goes into effect in December, but that's going to create a lot more unemployed. It's going to change things around and communities never stop. It never stops. Okay, Seattle City Council voted in the $15 an hour. President Obama put in the overtime rule. The latest things that Seattle now is announcing is, what do they call it? What it is, you can't hire someone, you can't hire another employee in your company without offering additional hours to your current employees. So you essentially have to get permission. Here's a rule that's going to require employers to ask their current workers if they want more hours before they're allowed to hire additional staff. Now, how stupid is that? In addition, employers would be required to provide advance notice before schedule changes and give their workers at least 11 hours off between shifts. Now, this just makes no sense. This is, uh, this is stupid. I, I don't know how else to describe it. It's stupid. The, the fact that you have to offer current workers more hours. There's some that'll take 
all the hours. It doesn't say anything about overtime or straight time. So offering those hours, you may have to pay time and a half for those if, if it goes over 40 hours for some of these people. May have to. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You got to provide advance notice. What's advance notice for scheduling changes? And 11 hours off between shifts. That one, I think, is probably the easiest one to comply with. Very rarely does an employer have longer than a 10 or 12 hour shift. You see a lot of nurses in hospitals doing like four 10 hour shifts, or I've even seen three 12s. But even at that, they have 12 hours between shifts. But to force an employer to ask their current workers if they want more hours before they hire additional staff, I, I can't even can't even comprehend the stupidity of this and the consequences it's going to cause. What I do know is that companies like McDonald's and Wendy's are going to go more and more automated. As you increase the minimum wage, companies that have positions that a computer or a robot can do effectively as a person, essentially low-skilled jobs, it's going to be cost-effective for these fast food places and other companies to put in robots, to put in computer processing stands to do your ordering. Automation is a natural course in any economy. Uh, General Motors, one of the largest car manufacturers in the world, started adding robots to their assembly lines in 1961. So it's been around for a long time. Some of the robots make jobs safer than what people can, can do. But all of these companies have a greater financial incentive now to find alternatives to real people. So much so that we're starting to see in Europe, you won't believe this, in Europe, there's some uh, proposals out there that would count robots as people for tax purposes. They're being classified electronic persons and the business owner is going to be liable to paying tax for these robots well this is a ways down the road okay it's not going to happen next year or anything like that it might take decades before this comes into place but think about this think about this they're saying that the growing intelligence the pervasiveness and autonomy requires rethinking everything from taxation to legal liability. 
Robots could be established as having the status of electronic persons with specific rights and obligations. There's a draft out there that that says that organizations who use robots would have to declare the savings that they have made in Social Security because of not hiring people and make those contributions anyway based on the robots. So now we got electronic people that employers are going to have to pay taxes on. There's a law of economics out there called the law of bad ideas. And the law of bad ideas stipulates that bad ideas never go away. They just get worse over time. I want you to have a great day. Be self-reliant, be independent, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 